1: This episode of Positively Trek is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, Carl Morris, and associate producer William Smith. Visit patreon.com slash positivelytrek to help support the podcast. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, shout outs, associate producer credits, and more. Thank you for your support, and keep trekking.
0: Captain's log. April the 5th, 2063. The voyage of the Phoenix was a success. Again. The alien ship detected the warp signature and is on its way to rendezvous with history.
2: Well, folks, we did it. 100 episodes of the Positively Trek podcast After a little over a year, we're in the triple digits, and I'm so excited to be sitting here recording the 100th episode with my partner in crime, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you celebrating our 100th episode today?
1: By being on it.
2: That's how I'm celebrating. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that and
1: First Contact Day. It's two celebrations.
2: Absolutely. So, yeah, this was kind of a pure coincidence. First Contact Day falls on the same week that we have our 100th episode. So we're releasing this episode a day early on April the 5th, the actual First Contact Day. And uh, we thought it would be fun to talk about Star Trek First Contact, which, by the way, and this kind of shocked me when I did the math here is 25 years old this year so uh we thought it'd be fun to kind of talk about that film we didn't want to do it alone though so we're bringing in another trek expert uh to talk about the film so uh everyone please welcome damien devlin the irish trekkie of youtube damien welcome to the show
0: hey uh thanks for having me on this monumentous occasion first contact and 100th episode Oh, thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Damien, you're someone, I've, I've, we have a list of people we
2: want to have on the show over the course of our run, and you've been on that list for quite a while, so I'm I'm really happy to finally get the chance to have you on. <laughs> it
1: just took us 100 episodes to get
0: to you. <laughs> 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 well, listen, you know, good things come to those who wait, so I'm, I'm so happy to be here to talk to you, uh, both on this awesome sunny day, and what a, what a day it is.
2: Excellent. And yeah, we're we're kind of a world sprawling podcast today because I'm, of course, coming to you from Alberta, Canada. We have Bruce in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, you're all the way, of
0: course, in Ireland. International time zones and all, all the fun that <laughs> comes with that as well. So yeah, global podcast. Yay! <laughs>
2: Well, for our listeners who may not know of you or or maybe haven't heard of what it is you do, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do as far as your YouTube channel and any other kind of Star Trek projects
0: that you do? So, uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk to your fans and listeners. Um, I suppose in a nutshell, uh, I'm an adult that plays with toys in the best possible way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You mentioned the word Trek expert there. Yeah, potentially, I have some knowledge that could be useful in today's podcast, but I'm I'm a huge sci-fi enthusiast and I just love everything about the technology and, and starships in general. And uh, for the most part, you'll see my um, hands playing with models of Star Trek starships and other sci-fi franchises and just celebrating the sheer joy of uh, imagination and uh, wonder about the world of what could be. And um, outside of YouTube, uh, you will find me in uh, the Nerd Escape podcast, where I uh, co-host, uh, again, some Trek and sci-fi talk with my friends, the Trek Collector and Hen in a Hat. And um, yeah, just pottering around, you know, talking about Trek and, you know, uh, other cool sci-fi shows that we get to enjoy in the past few years as well.
2: Excellent yeah, I think that's how I first uh got introduced to you was your reviews of course of the Eagle Moss models, which I love I have a ton nowhere near your collection but uh i i really enjoy your reviews of of those ships
0: yeah it's yeah i'm I'm kind of i have that first world problem now of where to put <laughs> the collection it's uh it's absolutely it's it's like no other out there a hero collector eagle Moss have just when they came onto the scene. In 2013 which is when I started YouTube shenanigans as well Um, being able to hold the ship of the week from your favorite episode or you know just kind of fall into the lore it's been amazing and uh, I've really enjoyed every single video and the fringe benefit of meeting amazing people like yourselves and many others through the years doing this as well and just sharing in the fun you know uh, and the beauty about, it, like you mentioned it there, Canada, you know, America, Ireland, it's, it doesn't matter where you're from now. You can just get to talk to people from wherever, at any time of the day and just, you know, talk Trek. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because before the internet, I really didn't have many people to talk Trek with at all. And now I've got all kinds of people, including yourself, that I can talk Trek with. And I mean, I don't have the collections like you have with these ships. I mean, how many ships do you have and where do you keep them all?
0: <laughs> yeah um, it'd be wow uh, I don't I don't have the official number off the top of my head but um, it's definitely past uh, well past 200 so I, I'm kind of so I do have a lot of them out um, I have some nice display cabinets that were purchased from a supermarket chain over here called uh, Lidl um German chain and uh, they're specific display cabinets but uh, Ikea have been a f- uh, a favorite for a lot of collectors out there, the Detolf and stuff like that as well. Here we're we're going into furniture talk here now, aren't we? But um, for for the most part, uh, I do keep most of my collections in my kind of office slash kind of fun zone, and I have been able to sneak one special one into the sitting room because uh, you know I'm more the enthusiast in my household. I'm trying to I'm training the kids, but uh, you know trying to get around my wife uh is a challenge so I did have have one snuck into the sitting room as well which is great
1: <laughs> so how did that happen what, how did you address that with your wife to get permission to have that one item out in the sitting room
0: well I came at it tactically I was kind of you know I'll tell you what the ship is actually do you know Dan you you have seen some of my videos as well what would you think would be the ship that would sit in potentially a sitting room just to put you on the spot there
2: I feel like I'm going to be pretty unimaginative and I'm thinking it's an Enterprise of some kind, but I'm not sure. I'm going to
1: guess Titan.
0: Two very good. Like, obviously, yeah, the Enterprise is always a good mix and the Titan is, oh man, what a wicked ship. And you know what? Like, Lower Decks... Man, did that ship justice! I tell you, that's another story. But um, the ship that I got in there—it's a—it's a a personal favorite of mine, and it's a bit of a a divisive ship. But it's actually the USS Discovery, believe it or not. It's the XL version, and the way I got around it was the kind of almost Art Deco vibes that come off that ship and it's just long and slender and the color tone on it as well so you know I love the ship anyway but I kind of used it as a bit of an art piece and uh yeah it worked so I have the XL Discovery on display in the sitting room so it's at a glance it's my little bit of trek downstairs so it's good (laughs) and some of them are unboxed as well so but uh yeah I'd love to get them all on display at some stage
2: yeah mine are kind of all about the room in a bit of disarray so I think I, I might need to clean up my collection at some point and figure out exactly how I want it to to be. There are so many of them for sure. I do have a, a bit, my my wife is huge into Star Wars. She's a big Star Wars fan. So she's got all kinds of Admiral Ackbars all over the, the main living room as well. So <laughs> I get a little bit of space there as a compromise. We kind of ha- share that half and half.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have that uh, fortunate stance right now because my wife, she I mean, she's supportive and she likes Star Trek and Star Wars and things like that, but she doesn't really want them displayed in the house. Mm. I don't think I have anything out in the general area. She allows me to put put a few things on my bathroom sink, and then every once in a while, if I sit something out, she says, well, I mean, you're not keeping it there, are you? I mean, you have a room.
0: (laughs) I get that too. A lot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It goes into the room. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we want to definitely thank you for being on this show, this special show, of course, because uh, today, if you're listening to this, when the episode comes out, it is First Contact Day and there's no shortage of Star Trek events. We, of course, have Star Trek Day uh, in September with all these panels and stuff, and they've decided to repeat that again for First Contact Day which is pretty interesting. So happening all day today and probably uh, in the past, by the time you're listening to this, six different panels that are going to be streamed live for first contact day, including one that I'm really excited about a Star Trek prodigy panel, which caps off the end of the day. So uh, there's probably going to be some news coming out there that uh, we are unable to share because it's still in our future, but uh, yeah, it's a big day of celebration. It's really Really awesome to see them kind of embracing this as a special day for Star Trek. So uh, we're, of course, recording this, like I said, a few days beforehand. So question to the two of you. Do you plan on trying to catch any of these panels when they come out?
1: Well, that's going to be a little difficult for me during work, but I might be able to sneak them in playing in the background. But I'm sure they'll be on YouTube to rewatch later or something. But it looks like for at least my time zone, I could
2: probably get the 5 and 5 30 p.m in but the
1: others it's,
2: we'll just have to see they will be uh, on the paramount plus youtube channel afterwards apparently according to this so we can retroactively catch them
0: which is awesome for accessibility you know because i'd be like bruce as well if, if i could catch them i definitely would but it's nice to be able to sit back in your own time and catch up on a panel because it's 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 nice reading news especially like with prodigy but uh th- th- there's a again a certain nicety of watching the panel and how people are interacting and what they're talking about as well. You get a little bit of extra kind of kind of special sauce with it as well.
1: Especially with Prodigy, because I'm with you, Dan, like I'm really excited about that one. Hopefully we get something new from this or a date or something I'd love to. That's the one I would want to watch live because Damien, like you're saying, it's like all of a sudden, you know, people are going to be talking online and you can interact with people during the panel since it's 5
2: 30 PM. I stand a good chance of joining that one live. The other big panel, of course, is is the first one, which is only labeled special presentation, saying that it begins with a special announcement and presentation by Patrick Stewart with details yet to be revealed. Uh, So I'm curious about that one as well, if it has anything to do with Picard season two or or something like that. They're being really cagey about that. But yeah, that and the prodigy panel I'm definitely most interested about. Because Patrick Stewart's just going to say, we started production. Uh, That's probably it. We already know.
0: (laughs) He could be be announcing, like, you know, an an unplugged concert. You know, the the flute is returning. You never know. Uh, uh, (laughs) There's a lot of options out there, but, yeah, probably Picard, too.
2: (laughs) I like it. The Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra concert. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I'd love that soundtrack. Excellent. Well, yeah. uh, So, hopefully, we get some interesting news out of that. We'll definitely be sharing all of that in next week's episode. Uh, But for this week's episode, because it's first contact day, uh, we thought it might be fun to revisit that film, which again, like I said, is 25 years old. And I'm going to keep saying that because it just blows my mind every time. Uh, I think that I I remember watching it in the theater and, and just loving it as you know, a fairly young person at the time. And it just blows my mind that it's a quarter century later. We're talking about this film now. So today, of course, being April the 5th is the negative 42nd anniversary of First Contact between Earth and the Vulcans. I was wondering, have the two of you gotten out your First Contact Day salmons yet? Have you grilled that up for, uh, in, in celebration of
0: the day? No. <laughs> yeah, no, not yet. <laughs>
2: definitely uh definitely on the list. I, I I love that it's just like a throwaway line of course from lower decks, but I I think that's a great tradition. Like I like salmon. Let's make it a thing. I think that's cool. Yeah, I might do that. Now that you mention it. Sure, why not?
0: Maybe like a borg burger or something would be more of my street, but, you know. Market well, in your own special good. way. Let us know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: absolutely so uh to the two of you did you rewatch first contact recently or if not when was the last time you you saw the film damien when did you last watch first contact
0: well i'll tell you it's one of the things i wanted to thank you about because um i like to do a little bit of research when i come onto a podcast if possible and uh, i've just recently rewatched it and uh it has, it has, it has stood the test of time, as you said, 25 years ago. It makes me feel old now. We'll get into the meat and veg of it a little bit later on, but um, yeah, well, it's still, it's still such an awesome movie.
1: Yeah, I rewatched it uh, last night. Snuck it in. I saw it was on Paramount Plus. I was gonna watch the Blu-ray, but I was telling Dan before the show like every Blu-ray TV that had a Blu-ray player connected was being used or whatever. So I couldn't use it last night with the family, but I was able to watch it on my phone on Paramount plus. So there's a thumbs up to Paramount plus for having it there.
2: Yeah. I, I rewatched it last night as well. Uh, I decided to watch it with uh, the director's commentary. So Jonathan Frake's commentary, uh, because I've I've seen that movie so many times. Like I can absolutely say the lines along with the actors at this point, because That movie is so burned in my brain. It just hit at the perfect time uh, when I was younger. And it has uh, so just been such an influential Star Trek film and one that I've absolutely loved. So it was really fun to be able to revisit it. To your point, Damien, it absolutely stands the test of time. It really, really holds up well. It's kind of crazy to think it was 1996 that it came out.
0: Mm. I remember watching it yesterday and um i was just I, like that now i i know the story i know the cues and stuff like that so i was kind of paying special attention to some of the details and just like the overall feel and like the lighting and the music and just like the set dressings and stuff like that i was like oh, it's such such quality and just the little micro actions of uh the the cast and crew is just yeah it's such it's such a a pleasure to return and uh, re-watch that movie
1: And when I was watching, I thought about how it was in 96. And I thought, this is less than 20 years after the motion picture. And I thought, how many, you know, that was eight movies in less than 20 years. And we haven't had that since, you know, I mean, the last 20 years, we've had what four, I I, just thinking, like, it's come a long way from the motion picture, all the way to first contact. And I agree with you guys, it definitely holds up. It's a it's a fun movie to watch. It really is even to this day. And it's been a while since I watched it. And I mean, yeah, I've seen it so many times, but it's been a while. And to, after all this time to watch it again, it was a lot of fun.
2: Yeah. It's, it's an interesting film because it's, you know, part action adventure, but it's kind of also Star Trek doing horror for the first time a little bit as well, which analyzing it from that perspective this time around and really looking at some of those choices and you can really see the influences from big horror movies and action adventure movies as well. And, and I think they, they, crafted something really great and it's a nice balance in tone because i mean if it was all just this what stuff going
1: on with the borg and it was all that horror thing i don't think i'd like the movie as much but because you have those kinds of horror scenes and and it's intense and all these things are going on and then it goes back down to earth with Cochrane and and all the things that are going on there and then you kind of have a breather and you have a lighter moment so it's a perfect balance to give it the tone throughout that some horror, some fun, and it works. It works tremendously.
0: The super clever move of almost splitting the story between Earth and the Enterprise and splitting the crew up gave you the kind of time to, like, tension and relax and tension and relax as well, for sure. So 100% agree on that.
2: Yeah, it's actually funny both of you bring that up because that was something that Jonathan Freaks highlighted in the commentary is you know kind of that that building of that suspense and that kind of twisting your guts and then that release and basically it's so you can experience that twisting up and and revving up again you know the movie kind of does that over and over again which you know really contributes to the enjoyment of watching it for sure i kind of want to pop back in time 25 years ago and and ask about if you guys remember watching it the first time and maybe like the anticipation of it. What was your kind of memories of, of seeing it? If you kind of remember the build up and seeing it in the theater and that sort of thing.
1: I really don't remember what I, th- I mean, I know I liked it. I just don't remember my initial feelings when I saw it. I remember the build up and thinking, okay, the Borg on the big screen. Oh my gosh, this could be so good. And also know Zenfred Cochran's going to be it. I, it was just, just knowing those two elements of it. I got really excited about it. I do remember where I saw it. I think a friend of mine went with me who was not a Trekker at all. I mean, I mean, he knew Star Trek and kind of liked it, but he wasn't like a big fan of it. But he went with me. I remember him really enjoying it too. So, But yeah, I don't remember when I... I don't remember the coming out of the theater and what my feelings were. I don't remember that piece, which I hate because I, I remember that on so many others, but this one I don't.
0: I sometimes have not the best memory, but... On this occasion, I do have some very vivid memories about First Contact because back when it was released, I was 14, 15. So like, I remember on the lead up to it, we knew the Enterprise D went its merry way, unfortunately. Great movie, Generations. But, um, you know, the hype of like a new ship coming. And I remember like before, like the internet was really kind of kicking off over here, printing off. Pictures from, I think it was like a Hollywood magazine, something like that. And it was showing clips of the bridge. And just, I had one friend that was like, like, liked Star Trek in school. And the two of us were kind of like printing off pages in my uncle's office and kind of going, Oh, this is going to be so cool. But I do remember watching it in the cinema and coming out going, That was friggin' awesome. You know, because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like watching, like, I grew, like, TNG was my gateway to Trek. I've always liked the classic movies. I say classic, like, you know, they weren't that far between the the, the two. But uh, when TNG crew transitioned to the big screen, I've always loved their movies. And like First Contact, though, was just like, I remember just thinking, oh, that was nuts. So much, so much to talk about. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> awesome.
2: It's it's funny because that recollection very much matches my own. I was 14 when it came out as well and kind of an interesting coincidence there. And uh, I remember... There was a a social studies class that I was in and we had to like make this little time capsule at the start of the year that we were going to open at the end of the year. And I distinctly remember our local newspaper, the Grand Prairie Daily Herald Tribune had like a a story about first contact coming out and there's a little black and white photo from the the movie and i cut that out because i was like oh my gosh you know local newspaper talking about star trek and i was so excited about this movie i put that in the little time capsule thing as like 13 year old me at the time because my birthday was right around the same time was thinking like wow when i open this i'll have seen star trek first contact like that's how how excited i was about the movie (laughs) at the time and Even the advertising is burned on my brain. I still remember on November 22nd, resistance is futile all the time as like (laughs) these ad breaks in between shows and stuff. And I was so pumped for this movie. It just came at the perfect time for young me to be so totally hyped about it.
1: I love how you guys are young yous during this time. And I was 29. And after the movie, we went out for drinks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I can guarantee you then with the kind of age difference there, you would have potentially had a different perspective on the movie versus, you know, the two of us kind to of be probably super green, you know, because like looking back, watching it now as an adult as well, you know, you do pick up on the tension and like the relationships more and, and like the shift. I think like, I think this is one of the best representations of the Borg. I've always wanted the Borg to be something that would kind of send a shiver. Down, down your spine, and I loved what they did with the Borg and Voyager, but I felt that it was a bit TVified. So, like the the kind of mm. horror aspects, and you know the monolithic, you know the cube and Picard. You'd be doing them a favor if if you you know you know end their lives and stuff like that. I loved that kind of horror aspect too because they are petrifying things when you think about it. Like humanity is at stake, the future is at stake, and yeah. Pretty cool ride though at the time.
2: Yeah, for sure. And that's one thing I noticed too this time around in high definition as well, is how much of that just holds up so well. Like the the Borg makeup for one thing. And and Jonathan Frakes got into this a little bit with the commentary about how there were different makeup artists in charge of different groups of Borg so that there was d- enough variation. Like no, none of them were exactly the same as another one. And in high definition, yeah, it really, really holds up. There's some really horrific makeups there where like the, the lips and stuff on this one particular one were like kind of cracked and peeling away, like really almost zombie like at that point where I was really amazed with some of that stuff.
1: Yeah. I was very impressed with the makeup and the style of the costumes because they had come a long way since the, the TNG TV series with those costumes. And I did watch a little bit of one of the special features. And I remember them saying they only had eight Borg costumes, but they made it seem as if there were hundreds of Borg, but they only had eight costumes that they were using. And they reused all those costumes for Voyager, they said.
2: Yeah. The, the amount of work that goes into this and and just the, the team of people that came together Uh, is really incredible, and and set design and and the writing, the performances, I think, are all just terrific. One thing I wanted to kind of bring up is, you know, in, in a little bit of coincidental news here, I recently learned John Eve's Uh, who, of course, is the designer of the Enterprise-E and many, many other things in Star Trek. He's even worked on Discovery and designed the Shenzhou and all of that, is going to be honored with an Art Directors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award. So just kind of, you know, just the the sheer scale of expertise that's behind this film and John Eves just being one example of that, I think it really shows uh, the minds that came together to create this film. 100%,
0: you know, it takes a village.
1: I always liked the E, except I always felt that the E looked like it was designed for this movie. I mean, which it was, but then it seems a bit out of place when I watch the other movies because like you can see all the little life pods on there that they use for the movie, but you can see it in the design of the ship at all the time. And and it looks like it's a ship built to fight the Borg, which in essentially it, it kind of is. Again, loving the look of the E, at the same time, it always stands out to me as it looks like that because of the Borg, because of this movie. I didn't feel like it was a ship that was designed
2: for future movies. It was really designed for this movie. That's an interesting point. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but, uh, yeah, it does seem like a sleek, you know, fighting type ship, which is, you know, not really the norm for Star Trek, but I don't know. I I feel like it fit in well with the later films as well. I think of the TNG films, this is by far my favorite, uh, and we'll always have that place there. So, but yeah, I think it worked okay in the other films, but it wasn't maybe used to the same potential that it was here like this film we really get into the guts of the ship more so than we really see in any of the other
0: movies true and I remember talking to and because I've had the the huge honor of, of uh, talking to John about the enterprise E, and one thing that I never thought about with it because it was designed for this movie 100% because there was the talk and you there's images out there if you google it that The decal Enterprise-E was put on a Galaxy-class ship. And it was going to be another uh, Galaxy-class until, you know, the powers that be said, let's go with a different design. You know, because this ship was born on the big screen, they took advantage of the widescreen format versus the 4x3 format that the Enterprise-D was born into. And if you look at the Excelsior way back when, you know, that has some of the same elements that the Enterprise E has, you know, the long, sexy lines and the long nacelles and stuff like that as well. But it's 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 one of these ships though that goes through a lot of evolutions because the ship varies from movie to movie after this. So in uh, Insurrections and Nemesis, it doesn't kinda stay true to itself, but it is one of my favourite Federation ships out there. And she looks lovely on like coming in to the, the fleet action, you know, in between mm. the cube and the defiant and you know, it's quantum oh, torpedo volleys shot. and oh, <laughs> yes, tasty. That's the ship. That's the shipy in me there.
1: <laughs> I like what you're saying about the Galaxy class ship because I remember at the time this movie. Well, actually, when Generations came out and the Enterprise D crashed and burned, I was thinking, okay, if they do another movie, it's going to be an Enterprise E. I hope they don't do what they did in the Voyage Home and just recreate the Galaxy. D to look and it just says E on it. Like I wanted it to look different. I wanted to be a different ship. And it's funny that they were considering keeping the same look. I'm glad that they decided to move forward with a different type of ship. That's cool.
2: Well, one of the things that I love about this movie is it's, it's definitely a Star Trek film through and through, but There are very clear efforts and and in a lot of ways, I think it succeeds in bringing kind of the general public into Star Trek. And Bruce, you were talking about your friend who wasn't necessarily a Trekkie, but still really enjoyed the film. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of our favorite parts. And one of my favorite parts is it's, it's kind of subtle, but once you notice it, it's really hilarious. In this kind of effort to bring the non-Trekkies on board with the story, the most clear example of that is near the beginning of the film when they're chasing the Borg sphere and it starts opening up the the temporal vortex to go back in time. Data says the, the sphere's emanating chronometric particles and us Star Trek fans are like, oh, chronometric, that's time travel. And then Picard stands up and he says, they're opening a temporal vortex. Now you've brought about, you know, half of the remaining viewers on board because temporal, ooh, time travel. But then Riker stands up and says, time travel. (laughs) Like, just to get everybody on board. And I love that. Like, they just spell it right out, and it's perfect. He's like, for those
1: of you watching don't know what we're talking about, it's time travel. I'm the director here, so I just want to make sure everybody's clear on that here in the audience. Okay, we good to go? Let's continue.
2: (laughs) Exactly. I love that. I I kind of grin every time I see that. Time
0: travel. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. And like, you know, I, to kind of continue that same vibe as well, like that that's what I thought with the character of Lily, like Lily was mm. the general public because you had so many conversations about you know who were the Borg, you know, oh, we don't have money in the future anymore and we're kind of altruistic and awesome and stuff like that. So she was kind of like the gateway character for the person that you might have been bringing to the cinema <laughs> with you as well to kind of give you some of these narrative explanations as well so
1: yeah because the whole time lily's just taking everything in and reacting is like what is this and who are you and and this is amazing and all these things are going on i love every scene with lily and picard those are probably my favorite scenes it's just the two of those characters together their performances are so strong and i love how he's you know the captain of the enterprise and he's helping this person, as you're saying to me, like the audience come in and say, hey, everything's okay. And let me show you around. And I would love almost in a way to just go on a tour of the Enterprise with Picard taking us through every place of the Enterprise and giving us a whole tour of this is this, this is this. Look, you can do this. That would be cool. Not as like a movie movie, but just a tour of the
2: ship by the Picard himself. Yeah. It's a great point about Picard and Lily, like those two together on screen, you know, even in the quiet moments, they're just two incredible actors doing this really amazing work. And of course, which brings us one of the, I I think probably the best acted scene in all of Star Trek history, which is of course the, the scene in the observation lounge, the, you know, the line must be drawn here, that famous scene. And, it's one that you just kind of it it's there and and it can be parodied and people make fun of it and stuff but you you watch that scene and just really watch that scene. those performances are absolutely incredible by both of those actors and they're feeding each other great stuff and and working off of each other just Brilliantly, and to hear Jonathan Frakes on that director's commentary talk about that scene and how just he talks about it being the best thing he's ever been involved in helping create, and it's you can hear the pride in his voice. That scene is so incredible. I bet he
1: had no idea that that scene would play as well as it did. It's like I bet he thought, oh, this is going to be really good, but once it happened, I think he was
2: probably just smiling I was like, oh, this is damn good.
0: <laughs> this is gold. Yeah, yeah, I believe
2: that. Yeah, and the you know the, the metaphors and all of that. Like the, the writing is incredible, but of course, what really elevates it are those performances for sure.
1: But, you know, again, it's a blend of like we're saying, there's times you can breathe and sometimes you're on the edge of your seat. But just with these two characters and that scene, it's so intense. But then earlier, there's a scene in the holodeck. Where, you know, it's a Dixon Hill and they're dancing and all this. And it's kind of a fun scene in a sense, you know, for a little while until Picard starts going off and shooting the Borg. But I also like that scene, too, because at the time I saw that, I just thought, this is so great. I never thought I would see Borg walking around in a Dixon Hill hologram.
2: You know, I mean, it's just so cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's a beautiful film. and, And like those moments, those kind of weird moments where you're like, wait, now we're in a, you know, Forties club here with the Borg, and it's it's definitely strange, and it does release that tension like we were talking about earlier for sure.
1: I mean, it could have been a really fun, even more fun and funny scene, but the way that scene builds to what happens later in it. It's good they didn't go too funny with it because you could have done something where, you know, a woman's running up to one of the Borg. Oh, dance with me and tries to dance with the Borg. Yeah, I, like there could have been all kinds of weird, funny things going on and it just would have been too over the top. So it was it's just it was just funny enough just to see the Borg there, you know, mm-hmm. and just the, that they're using the holodeck to hide
2: from the Borg and then order to
1: attack them then.
2: And of course the way that scene ends is much heavier than when it begins with Picard gunning down the Borg and getting caught up in that moment and obviously kind of losing himself a little bit. And uh, we see this this Borg that he's killed is Ensign Lynch. And and that moment where Picard's kind of oblivious to Lily's reaction when she says, "My god, Jean-Luc, it's one of your uniforms." He says, yes, this was Ensign Lynch. And he's just behind him like, tough luck, huh? And that scene is chilling because of how far Picard has gone. And, and like seeing it through the eyes of someone who's just, you know, kind of objectively looking at this and coming to it for the first time. You see how brutal that is and how far gone Jean-Luc is even at this point. Just as a little side note, the little com badge too that you see there. I didn't notice this before, but in HD, you can see there's little like Borg wires like little tiny things kind of etched onto it and apparently it was a borgified communicator and the cast and crew got little borgified communicators as like little parting gifts for the film that's That's i I would love to see one of those
0: so cool but i love that that was one of the the kind of takeaways i suppose kind of looking at first contact later on in life about you know how broken he was from his encounter with the borg and locutus because one of my beefs, I suppose, looking back at Star Trek, is you see some of the crew going through horrendous things. Like everyone has, like LaForge on the the planet uh, with the Romulans, and and like O'Brien going to prison and stuff like that. And they have these huge traumas. Next week on Star Trek, and everyone seems to be cured, you know, and um, mm-hmm. but not not the case here. And and that feeds into Picard uh, as well. But you know, he's he's come through the Borg. And he know he he has survived the Borg, but he'd rather put one of his own crew out of their misery instead of rehabilitating them if they have the option to do that. And it's just shown the kind of, as you say, the struggle since his last encounter with them. Uh, It's just very interesting to watch that come to be on the screen. Great, great acting by Patrick Stewart.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because that thought occurred to me when I was watching the movie because this is the first time I've watched it now since Star Trek Picard has come out. And it reminded me of Star Trek Picard and the fact that the Picard we see and what he's going through in First Contact is not exactly the Picard that you would know and and love from the original series because of what he's been through with the Borg and, and how that has changed him. And of course, then we get to Star Trek Picard and it's later in life and the things he's dealt with. And so it's always where we're seeing Picard go down a road where he usually doesn't go, but then he steers himself back. You know, and it's like I felt that in First Contact and I felt that in Star Trek Picard. And that thought occurred to me as I was watching the movie.
2: Yeah, it's interesting when interesting choices are made for characters. I feel like the temptation would be to play it safe and give everybody what they think they want to see. Right. The The regular old Picard on a merry old adventure. But no, they take the characters to some really interesting places, both here and in Star Trek Picard, as you said. And I think that really strengthens the material where a character can have flaws. A character can be allowed to show their humanity in ways that some characters and some writers would be maybe hesitant to to go to these places. But I really love that they take that that plunge here and they they they're brave enough to do that here. So I want to talk to you guys about maybe some of your favorite parts of this movie that we haven't mentioned so far. Uh I know for me it's it's always a bit of a thrill to see Robert Picardo as the EMH show up. Like that's kind of fun. What are some kind of fun moments that uh that the two of you enjoyed in this movie that kind of made you go,
0: Oh yeah, or or I really like that. I I love Drunk Troy. You know, um, Yes. I really, <laughs> I really like I I totally as I said earlier, we kinda we all know the scenes from having watched it more than once for sure, but like watching it recently, I was just there going That was just so spot on that, that scene with Zephyr and Troy and then Riker and then the Roy Orbison singing and and the head drop. And I was just like, that's just, I just loved that scene, (laughs) you know, um, (laughs) so good. So, so very good.
2: I love that scene. If, if you watch it multiple times and you watch Riker the entire scene and just all of his reactions to everything going on that is just the funniest thing and then keeping in keeping in mind that he's also directing the scene i i think it's just hilarious
0: <laughs> I, I think we've all been in a situation where you may have been the the most sober person at a party <laughs> and then you know the, when when he just when, when her head drops and he just like looks off screen and it just you can kind of hear the ah. <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> i loved it it's so good <laughs>
1: That's funny you guys mentioned those because when Dan you started off saying like let's let's talk about some of our other favorite scenes the first thing came to mind was the E M H and then the drunk Troy and you both mentioned that. <laughs> <Snap>. <laughs> <laughs> I think I also like the scenes where they're chasing Zemford and Cochran around. He's trying to go pee and he's trying to run away from them. I kind of enjoy that in in a sense. But I I think one of the things, and this isn't a particular scene, but one thing that really stood out to me watching this film last night was how much each character of this cast does get to play. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, some, of course, more than others, but I was just very impressed that I felt that every character had a purpose and always had something to do. And. Not just our main cast, also from the EMH and also to Barkley. We got him and even Hawk, you know, we got lots of him, even if this is his only film. And so I felt like we were really getting to touch on different characters that we've seen throughout. So even um, Agawa, Nurse Agawa was on there, too.
0: And I suppose like kind of one, one of the things that kind of stood out to me as well, because we, we got so many much screen time. Like, obviously, we have Wharf coming back in. To uh, first contact as well. And I love that whole setup and his interactions later on in the movie. But I must say, for the first time ever, I felt very sad for the tactical officer on the Enterprise that just got shunned away when, you know, Worf, we could use your help on tactical. And it's like, you you have a fully commissioned <laughs> officer there, and you're just kind of going, yeah, we've got our old guy back, you know, bye bye, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, oh that guy, you know, that that that's a lower decks episode for sure, it has to be.
1: I always think of that too. Every time I see it, I'm like, oh, the poor security guy is probably like, oh, well, Warf's this is here. my job, <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know, you left, man, <laughs> yeah.
2: I am really glad they got Worf in the film, and of course he shows up in all the other TNG films afterwards afterwards as well. I feel like not as well explained as it is here, like an in insurrection, they bring him in and they just kind of start to explain why he's there and trail off as the camera finds another scene. And in Nemesis, he's just there. Like there's no explanation. He's just back on the enterprise now, I guess. But yeah, here we get the, the defiant meeting the, the board cube with the fleet and, and engaging it. And that, makes perfect sense that the defiant was designed to fight the Borg. Deep space nine would send the defiant and Worf would be in command. Like that was perfect. And he really does add so much to this film. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the scene, the scenes I should say between him and Picard towards the end of the film, incredibly acted and used in trailers all, all over. If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Like there's just such a great scene. I remember
1: the Defiant on the big screen. I was so excited at oh, that time. Yeah, I mean, it was just like you know <laughs> we've all been watching our little TVs at home on Deep on Deep Space Nine, and then all of a sudden you're in the theater there, and it's like in this big screen, and there's the Defiant. I was like, yes, and it's fighting the Borg. Oh, and Worf is the captain. Who's that other guy on the ship? I don't know, but wow, look. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love how he just ignored uh, Worf's like rabbing speed, sir. There's another ship coming on sensors, you know. It's like, (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
2: I always want to see that scene when like it's not the Enterprise, like, sir, there's another starship coming in, it's the Lexington. Okay, why are you
0: telling me? (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's the Enterprise. But uh, just, uh, just a question to you both because I, I hate, I always hate picking holes in movies and stuff like that but we get the reason why the Enterprise is not being brought into the fleet action you know because of the unstable element of the captain however the Enterprise is the flagship of the fleet with the flagship crew realistically wouldn't have made more sense to say Picard would you mind sitting this out in the holodeck and uh, maybe giving Riker <laughs> the seat for just like a half an hour because we could do with your quantum torpedoes and all that jazz but like listen <laughs> I was just thinking about that you know, when I was watching the last time going but like for the story I know why it was done.
2: No, that's a good point. And and yeah, there there's it's funny if you really critically analyze this film how many strange little plot holes there are and uh, I I'm, I'm not a fan of the guy, but Red Letter Media did a famous takedown of First Contact a few years ago and he does make some really good points. There's one aspect of this film where there's a lot of plot holes that are filled with one line of dialogue. And it kind of moves past it really quickly so that you don't have time to think about it. But if you stop and think about it, it makes very little sense. And one of them, for example, is uh, Picard saying, we can't get to the transporter room or a shuttlecraft. Oh, Mr. Worf, how's your zero-g combat training? If you look at the Enterprise-E, the shuttle, shuttle bay is right behind the bridge. And the Borg are down on deck 14, 15, whatever. But Picard just really quickly says, Oh, we can't get to a shuttlecraft. Oh, ah, blah, blah, blah. So you don't, you don't think about it, but that's one that always sticks out to me that I'm like, Hey, it's right there. It's like one floor down.
1: You ruined it for me. I can't watch that part again the same way.
2: Yeah. I, I think that's the thing
1: about, you know, fans like us, because we watch these so much and we know so much about the whole franchise and all the different stories and where things are that we can just pick it all apart but, you know, the majority of people watching these wouldn't even pick up probably on any of this. You know, no, the people exactly. making the films know it. You know, they're just like, ah, we can get away with just whatever. You know, the nitpicky fans will yell and scream. But psh, it's a narrative device. Move on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I always thought it was just interesting, too, that they don't want the Enterprise to come because Picard's the captain. And it's like, but this ship looks like it's built to fight Borg. And who better to fight Borg than somebody who knows where the Borg's weaknesses would be? But I can understand that maybe there's this trust factor of, well, how do we know Picard will really fight for us? Will he be tempted by the Borg? I get it. But then I like your point, like, just take Picard off the ship and have Riker bring it
0: in. Like he did the last time, you know, when Locutius came on board as well. We wouldn't have had a movie then, really, would we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, right. it's the narrative. And th- there's one scene that kind of jumps out in my mind as well, just because we're kind of on this topic, is when the Enterprise enters the fleet action. And Picard hears the whispers and he he finds this, you know, critical zone and you cut to the cue, the view screen. Right. And there's that dramatic pause because obviously we're watching a movie, but at least two ships get destroyed in that pause. And I'm like, just fire your freaking quantum torpedoes because like. 200 people just died in front of you there. Like, you know, I was like, I feel so sorry for those ships. But anyway.
2: The one that always gets to me too during that same scene was when the Enterprise first arrives. They say, you know, like, oh, the the Defiant's uh, losing life support. Bridge to transporter room. Beam the Defiant survivors aboard. And then in the next breath, Riker says, oh, the Admiral's ship's been destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't, couldn't you have been saving the Admiral instead? Oh, the Defiant? One of our friends is on there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, that's so funny because I, I i don't remember this it's you know when you watch a movie so many times and then one time you're watching you pick on some pick up on something you didn't before this is the first time i think i've ever picked up on the fact that the admiral ship the one that said don't come gets destroyed i was like oh my gosh that admiral well it's not like picard's gonna get in trouble because the admiral's dead so he doesn't know <laughs>
0: yeah we've only sent one of them to the fleet as well you know <laughs> just in case Right. <laughs> we didn't send a backup admiral like you know but anyway. <laughs>
2: Yeah, It's it's the Admiral, right? The one. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The other line that just I kind of have to go like "Eh," through every time I watch this movie comes right at the very end of the film where they're kind of getting ready to head back to the 24th century. And it's a beautiful shot. You get this kind of one camera shot panning across the bridge and each character comes in, gives a report and leaves and it's following Picard as he gets to the chair, and then he orders them back to the 24th century. But Worf says, the moon's gravitational field obscured our warp signature. The Vulcans did not detect us. And I'm like, wait, they're in orbit of Earth. The moon's gravitational field obscured their warp signature. And then at the very end, when they go back through the temporal rift, they're like right above Montana, and you can see them go through the (laughs) rift in the night sky. (laughs) And I'm like... (laughs) Wait, sorry. How did the, wait, what? The moon? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I love how you're bringing
1: these things up because, again, <laughs> I remember hearing that every time I've seen the movie and just going like, yeah, whatever. But this was one of those ones where it was like, wait, I got to hear that again. I rewound it because I had to hear that <laughs> one more time. And then I started thinking about, well, wait, you know, this is in the f- our future that when we're in Montana in this film. And I'm thinking, if the Enterprise were in orbit of Earth today— we would detect it, right? So I'm always thinking, I'm not even so worried about the Vulcans detecting the Enterprise there. What about the rest of Earth? Wasn't NASA and all these other agencies all picking up? There's a ship up there?
0: Post-World War Three, you never know. Maybe. They were looking elsewhere. <laughs> but I get your point, like, 100%.
2: Nah, and I mean, they do find it with Zephrem Cochrane's
0: telescope. So, I mean,
2: <laughs> like somebody else could be seeing this.
0: It's so like it's, like when you dissect it like it, it it can it gets to the point where it's just funny. It doesn't take away from the movie at all. Like you know like even even the scene where you see the sphere shooting very slowly at tin shacks, you know, and making mm-hmm. barely any damage is like what yield is? Are your torpedoes on? Like you know, it's you didn't even destroy the bar, even though it got a direct hit. And it's like yeah, it's 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 funny certain certain things, but again, it does not take away from any of the enjoyment that. I would get out of the movie either at the same time. Just gives me a giggle.
2: Absolutely. That's the thing is this film can get away with a lot of that because like, let's just be frank. It's so darn good. Like it's such a good story and so well done that these little kind of minor niggles, like you say, they're, they're fun to laugh at and fun to kind of point out, but yeah, they don't take away from the story at all. I come away from this film satisfied every single time I watch it and I've watched it. I don't know how many times at this point, but I every time that music swells at the end and the camera pulls up from the Vulcan ship, I'm just grinning. Like, I love this film.
1: Really, Dan? Do you feel that way through the whole film? Because what happens to you when you hear Zephryn Cochran say <laughs> you're on some kind of Star Trek?
0: Oh, I know, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is... The most, one of the most cringe lines in all of Star Trek. And I, (laughs) I understand the temptation to get the name of the franchise in for the first time, but, and and I honestly think there's no better actor to try and pull it off than James Cromwell, because everything he says does sound natural, but boy, did they stretch it with that line. That was, that's a tough one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, on the one of the uh, bonus features I was watching, uh, they were talking how they debated that one for a while. They said they sat on it for a while, just trying to, is this something we want to do? And then they played with the line just saying, what, are you on some kind of Trek? And they were just going to go with Trek. And then they thought, uh, eh, you know, and, and even Berman was on the fence about going Star Trek, but they decided to, to go with it, and, and they kept it in there, so... But it wasn't something they just, oh, we'll put that in there. It'll be fun. They, they spent some time debating.
2: Yeah, I bet. And that makes sense that like, this would be a hotly debated thing. I don't know that they made the right decision. I still kind of go a little, mm-hmm, every time I hear it. Uh, I think it is one of the, yeah, one of the most cringe fourth wall breaks, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they got it in there. It's, it's famous for that. We're talking about it 25 years later. So maybe they made the right decision. I don't know. It doesn't bother me. It, it I mean it kind of took me out the first time I saw
1: it, but it it's okay.
2: I remember the discussions when the movie first came out as to like what that line actually meant, and I I think like it's meant he's meaning a Star Trek as in a star trip, you know, which is kind of silly but there were people i remember online talking about like does the television show star trek exist in the star trek future is he talking about having watched star trek as a kid and and saying like oh these guys are kind of like that and like oh no 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 no, (laughs) can of worms don't open that
0: (laughs) you know there's good uses of breaking the fourth wall and this isn't one of them but i listen it's it's kind of, it, it has somewhat kind of seasoned with time because you know it's coming and you're kind of going, oh, here comes the cheese. But uh, as you said... The way it's delivered as well, because it's Oliver Cromwell, if anyone else is going to say it, it may come across even worse, but it's, it is it, it is what mm-hmm. it is. It's part of lore now. Now yeah. I kind
1: of wish when you see the scene of Zephyr and Cochran and Troy having drinks together, that there's a TV in the background with TOS playing. You know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Those old scientists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny when that moment came up in the film with the director's commentary, I was kind of looking forward to it. I wanted to hear kind of Jonathan Frakes talk a bit about that, but uh, he was talking about some other story about filming on location and and that sort of thing and, and the hard work that that entailed and that kind of went over that line. So he never addressed it and in retrospect I'm thinking was that on purpose was he just like I don't want to talk about
0: that I, didn't 100% like that. Say, I don't know yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> because it's such like they really take their time with that single line like they the the way it's framed and he delivers it slowly so you're astronauts on some kind of star trek you know so if he didn't say it in the mm-hmm. director's commentary I think we all kind of know why <laughs>
2: Yeah. The only thing I think that could have made it worse was if like there was some sort of acknowledgement afterwards, like they all exchanged knowing glances or like a little smirk or something. I'm really glad they didn't do that. Like (laughs) they don't really react to it. They just say, listen, doctor, we're running out of time here. You know, and they kind of move on from that. Uh, The one time the like knowing smirk that I actually really like in the movie is when They've achieved orbit and they're about to engage the the warp drive. And Zefram Cochrane says, "Engage!" And Riker and R- and Geordi look at each other and laugh. <laughs> I was like, I like that. I thought that was funny. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad they didn't play up too much cheese with like Star Trek, and then later Riker's like, "Yeah, and you're you're." your warp drive is going to create all these ships for generations to come. And there'll be one generation and then the next generation.
2: And so many voyages
0: so you know, into deep space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They could have really went to town on that one.
2: I, th- I think we're all pretty agreed that this is a top tier film in the Star Trek franchise and, and one of our favorites. I'm wondering, just kind of going around the room, are there any final thoughts about the film that we haven't talked about yet?
0: I suppose I I, I just want to give massive kudos to the team and just the story of introducing the Phoenix and the fact that it was a Titan missile and it looked awesome and just the the, the detail and how it was used, it it was tremendous. And um, the Borg Queen, you know, Alice, just was Mm. freaking amazing. I always kind of ask myself, would I prefer some sort of kind of Landru type of, you know, computer to be you know behind the borg but uh listen the, the hive mind the borg queen oh it's so good and creepy as hell you know but yeah they're the two other things
2: yeah alice krieg's uh performance alongside brent spiner is definitely a highlight that we haven't really talked about and those scenes her first introduction the first scene she's introduced you don't see her she's just a disembodied voice and I don't know what it is about her delivery and, and how she does those lines, but they're so good. Like brave words, you know, just that's your first introduction to her. And you're like, what is that? What's happening? I love that. It's this great introduction to a really uh, divisive character, I think, for a lot of fandom, but incredibly performed by by Alice Krieg for sure. I remember when
1: this was coming out and hearing about the Borg Queen, I thought, okay, do we really need to have the main villain? Like, why can't it just be the Borg? But, you know, I was like, well, we'll see how this is. And I really liked it because it just makes so much sense. You know, the Borg is all about, you know, we, it's not I. And then she introduces herself and she says, I am the Borg. And I thought, well, yeah, it makes sense. If the Borg are like bees, you know, there's a hive mind, but there's always the queen bee. So this totally makes sense. And I love how she says, Picard, you know, oh, you only think in three dimensions, you know, it's like, why wasn't she destroyed in that other ship? Like as if there's other parts of the Borg that just go beyond time and space There's something even more mysterious about them. And so just adding the Borg Queen to it, I thought was a really nice element to just further enhance the Borg themselves. So I really enjoyed even just her performance. I really enjoyed the idea of the Borg Queen.
2: Bruce, is there anything else uh, with regards to the film that we haven't talked about yet? I think the only thing that's coming
1: up on the top of my head right now is the very last scene, when the Vulcans land in Montana. And I can never watch that scene without thinking of In the Mirror Darkly.
2: Yeah, I was I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: know, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing or not, but it's just I can't help but think about it, you know? <laughs> it's
0: a thing. It's just a thing. <laughs>
2: I think probably the biggest revelation from the uh, director's commentary with Jonathan Frake's was that the idea of Zephrem Cochrane shaking the Vulcan's hand instead of just returning the Vulcan salute was James Cromwell's idea. He said like, "Hey, you know, we should do, you know, he does the Vulcan greeting, we should do the human greeting in in reply." And that was all him and, and just that camera move. And it's, it's so much more meaningful, I think, than if he'd have just like returned the same symbol back, you know, which was how the original script was, which I had no idea. I think that's brilliant.
0: That's so good.
1: Yeah, that's that's perfect. And I love you even just that very last moment of them sitting there and he puts the music <laughs> on and starts dancing. The Vulcans are like, what's going on? And I thought... Yeah, and I also thought this is also, it really works well then later with Star Trek Enterprise, you know? I just felt like this is a good connection even into that. The Vulcans are going to look at humans for a while and just be like, these people, I don't know if they can handle space.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the look on the Vulcan ambassador's face is basically like, dear God, what have we done? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, Undesirables,
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, and you know, like that, that scene where even like and Cochran tries to do the the Vulcan solution, you know, we talked about how this movie is great for bringing in people who aren't really familiar with Trek because, again, like I remember when I was trying to do that for the first time. And if you meet a non-Trekkie and get them to try to do the Vulcan, they all struggle with it as well. And I just love when he kind of tries to do it. And he's like, oh, screw this handshake out. I just love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Super happy that you mentioned that because I forgot about it.
2: It's such a human moment, which is, you know, that's that's what Star Trek's all about. I love it. So yeah, here we are 25 years later, 25 years after it came out. uh, We're still talking about this movie in such glowing terms. I think that's terrific and and just such a great addition to the Star Trek universe. So I want to thank you guys so much for being here to talk about this. This is so much fun.
0: Thanks for having us. Having me, oh, as I say, me, like, yeah, I'm the Borg now. Uh, thanks for having me on, um, and especially your hundredth episode, as well. Uh, bravo to you too.
2: Oh, well, thank,
1: thank you. you. And, and yeah, it's really been, glad to have you on for it. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, I'm glad you were here to join us. It was a fun conversation. I mean, what what a great movie. It's definitely in my top three. Maybe, yeah, I'd say probably top three somewhere in there of Star Trek movies.
2: So, Damien, when you're not here talking first contact with us, where can people find you and all the awesome things you do online?
0: So, uh, yeah, listen, if you like starships and Trek and just just shenanigans and stuff like that, uh, come find me on YouTube for the most part. Just search for Irish Trekkie, all one word. And um, you'll also find me normally kind of skulking around on Twitter and Instagram as well. Surprise, surprise, under the moniker irish trekkie so generally if you search me you'll find me there so uh yeah so come and say hello and um get in the shippy conversation
1: so the name the irish trekkie does that mean there's only one irish
2: trekkie that exists (laughs) or are you the (laughs) irish Trekkie, the premier irish
0: the (laughs) premier irish trekkie um that means that when I went to put in Irish Trekkie, that that was already <laughs> used <laughs> I had to put in the <laughs> Irish Trekkie. But it gives it a certain kind of professional tone to it. But um, yeah, there's... what Do you know what I, I have enjoyed over the years? And by no means have I influenced anybody. But I love seeing people like, you know, the Scottish Trekkie or the British Trekkie. And I've seen the German Trekkie as well. It's like, yeah, you know, we're all kind of representing the global Trek market here, you know. So... Uh, yeah, it's 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 been fun to be kind of monikered that self monikered. I, I put that name on myself, but uh, yeah, I wear that badge proudly.
2: And uh, so, Bruce, when uh, you're not here talking about uh, various countries' Trekkie representatives, where can we find you? Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm not the Admiral Rex
1: Trekkie. I'm just. <laughs> Admiral underscore Rex on Twitter. You can find me there. I'm also on Instagram at Admiral Rex. I'm occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast. Been on a few episodes of Literary Treks lately, and I think that's about it. Of course, I'm always here, and I'm always hanging out in our Facebook
2: group, Dan. Excellent. Yeah, our Facebook group, the Positively Trek Discussion Group. Be sure to search that out, find it, and uh, we'll let you in. Great discussions happening there. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. It's just Star Trek backwards. YouTube.com slash Productions. And uh, yeah, find the podcast at Positively Trek on Twitter. Positivelytrek at gmail.com if you want to get a hold of us. And thank you to William Smith, our associate producer. Thank you so much for helping us bring this episode to you. We'll see you all in the next episode. Until then, as always, stay positive.